What a great song before the sermon. If you get sleepy, we may just strike it back up and do it again. It is good to be here. Thank you so much for your hospitality. We have just enjoyed being a part of this community and a part of this church family. And we are so impressed with this town and with this church. And Jake and Allison were telling us about Go Weekend and just all the things God is doing through you all and others to impact this community. And I would just encourage you to keep doing it. Keep doing it. Please keep being the people of God, doing the mission of God. That's what life is really about. Sometimes we think it's about other things. Sometimes we get distracted by so many things in life that we have to do, that we need to do, that we're waiting to do, that we should have done, and we miss out on what we are called to do. And that is be lights. Be lights in a dark world. It's to be disciples who make disciples. So thank you for your example. Thank you for the good news that is illuminating out of this community because of you. I am so encouraged, and we are encouraged by being here. It's been good to see Jake and Allison and their boys, Anderson and Coleman. We got to go over to their house last night, and he's right. We've known each other for a long time. I really didn't do the math. I didn't realize it was that long that we've known each other. We're both getting old, Jake. And just in my defense, it was a holy honk, and, <laughs> and it was intended to embarrass him, not to, uh, but now, boy, I feel really bad, so I guess I will come forward today and confess that wrongdoing. The slide and the title go right along with the uh, communion thoughts a, a few minutes ago. It's like we almost planned that or something. An out-of-this-world marriage. And even if you're not married, or you're not married yet, you guys married yet? No. Okay. <laughs> so if you're not married, but maybe one day you want to be married, or maybe you're never going to be married, I still hope and I think that there are some things that we can draw out from this message and from Scripture today that will help us be the people God calls us to be in all the relationships we have. So you make application as you see fit. I want this to be incredibly practical, but don't just check out if you are not married or not interested in marriage because there is still application uh, to be made. I'm reminded of the story of the young lady. She was about to get married, and she was nervous, and she was a little bit fearful, and she wanted to calm her nerves, and so she had this, this idea. She decided, I'm going to get one of my favorite scriptures decorated on the wedding cake. And so she called the caterer and she said, I want 1 John 4.18 on the cake. 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, for perfect love drives out fear. And that would give her a lot of comfort, and when she saw that, she would be at ease. And so the caterer said, we'll take care of it. Well, a week before the wedding, the caterer calls back, just making sure everything is set. Are you sure you want that verse? Yes, that's one of my favorite verses. Gives me great comfort. Okay, we'll do it. Went over some other things, and then it was time for the wedding. The wedding went off without a hitch. Everything was great until the reception. The groom and the bride walk into the reception room, and she lays eyes on the cake, and something happened. Rather than 1 John 4.18, the caterer had put John 4.18. For you have had five husbands, and the one you currently have is not your husband. <laughs> not good. <laughs> you know, I've, I, have, I have performed or officiated. I never know the right word. I have done several weddings. Sometimes it is officiating. <laughs> I need a whistle and a striped shirt. I have 
I have performed many weddings. And so many weddings, the couple wants scripture to be read. They want prayers to be said. Anybody want to guess what the favorite scripture for weddings is? Everyone knows. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And that's great. And I'm happy to do that. I think so often, though, unfortunately, we want God and we want scripture to be a part of the wedding but we don't always make God and Scripture a part of the marriage. You see, God's Word is more than just a symbol. It's more than just an app on our phone. It's more than just a book on our coffee table. It's more than just something that we say is important to us. We are people of the book. I hope that's true, but it's got to be true. It's got to be more than a symbol. It's got to be more than just an idea. And that certainly is true when it comes to marriage. You see, I think for many of us, in the church, we have done an excellent job of defending biblical marriage. And when something happens in culture to challenge that, we stand up and we defend biblical marriage, and we should. But are we as adamant about demonstrating biblical marriage? Has the Bible just become an idea? Has it just become a good idea? But has it just become something that is symbolic rather than something that we live out in our lives and in our marriages? Actually, the New Testament has a lot to say about marriage. has a lot to say about marriage. It has a lot to say directly to husbands and to wives. One of those places is 1 Peter. So we're going to spend some time there. If you have a Bible, look at 1 Peter. We're going to look at a, diff a couple of different passages there. If you know anything about this letter from Peter, you know that it is a message of encouragement. He is writing to Christians who are facing intense persecution. I'm going to turn this off maybe is that good or bad I don't know I feel like there's some maybe it's just me are we good okay every you know every place the sound is different so I can really hear myself which I, now I'm starting to feel sorry for you because you can hear me <laughs> Peter writes in this letter to a group of Christians in the first century who are facing incredible persecution they are being ostracized they are being tormented and mistreated because of their faith and so he's trying to give them a word of encouragement. And one of the things he reminds them is who they are. And so in the very first verse, in chapter 1, he says, You are exiles. You are strangers. You don't belong here. Boy, we need to hear that. Because that wasn't just written for them. That's written for us. We are exiles. We are strangers. We don't dig our tent stakes too deeply into the earth, and we don't cling too closely to the things of the earth. You know, we sing that song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. That's so true. And Peter wanted them to know that they were exiles because this world does not have the final say. And the things of this world don't identify us. They don't make us who God made us to be. And that's an important thing for us to remember. So he acknowledges that as Christian exiles, they are going to be targeted. They are going to be tormented. So you need and we need perspective. And the perspective is, let's keep our eyes focused on heaven. Let's continue to be faithful even when being faithful is difficult. Let's live out of this world lives. And for our discussion today, let's have out of this world marriages. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3. Verses 1 through 5, and then we'll skip down to verse 7. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, 
so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Verse 7, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner, which probably means physically weaker, which is typically the case, not always, but typically, and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Peter writes directly to husbands and wives. Did you notice he gives wives six verses, he gives husbands one verse. I don't think that's because husbands need to know less to be good husbands. It's probably because he knew they're only going to read one verse. They're only going to remember one verse. Let's just boil it down. Let's just consolidate it. He has a lot to say about marriage. And so I want to share just a couple of principles. Again, this applies to marriage, but it also applies to other relationships and other parts of life. And the first one is this. We need to elevate each other. We need to lift each other up. Now, specifically, he says what? He says, wives, submit to your husbands. Marriage should look different in Christian homes than it does in the world. And here, Peter isn't subjugating women. He's not oppressing women. Really, he is doing something that the prevailing culture is doing. I mean, think about Aristotle and his influence up till this time. Aristotle said that husbands should enforce their political rule over their wives. And so that's sort of the cultural flavor that's happening. That's the context. Peter comes along and he says to wives, choose to submit. Choose to submit. Richard Foster says that Scripture made the decision makers, made decision makers out of people who were for, forbidden to make decisions. Peter says, wives, choose. Make the decision to submit. And by submit, he means put your husband in front of you. He doesn't mean put, it, put him on a pedestal and worship him. It means put him in front of you. Elevate him in a way that says his opinions, his needs, his desires are important. Now, keep in mind, it says elevate each other. And I think that's what Peter says here. Going back to what Paul wrote, we talked about it in the seminar. Ephesians 5.21, submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. And then he goes on to say, wives, submit to your husbands. But he starts by saying, husbands and wives, all Christians, it's the nature of following Christ. We submit to each other. And so our marriages, our homes should be this context of mutual submission, of putting each other in front of me, putting you in front of me, your needs, your desires, your dreams. How can I take a back seat to you. And if you have this mutual submission, it's a beautiful thing. Now, will that stand out from the world? Will that be an out-of-this-world marriage? If a husband and wife are continually serving the other, sacrificing for the other, putting the other in front of themselves? Absolutely. Absolutely. You see, this mutual submission, I think, is highlighted here. Because not only does he say to wives, choose to submit to your husbands, what does he say to husbands? He says, you treat your wives as heirs. What's an heir? 
That's someone in the family who gets a part of the inheritance. In this context, who were the heirs in a family? I can assure you it wasn't the daughters. It was only the sons. Those were the ones who would get the inheritance. And now, Scripture says, husbands, you treat your wives as an heir, a co-heir. They are with you. You don't push them down. You don't oppress them. You elevate them. They are daughters of the King of the Most High. And so you put them in front of you. You find ways to serve them. This mutual submission that Paul writes about. They are heirs to the promise of God. They are children of the King. And so when we have that kind of marriage, we're not adversaries. Because in an adversarial relationship, there's a winner and a loser. In this kind of relationship, an out-of-this-world, faith-based, Christian relationship, we are co-heirs, we are partners. There's a difference. We keep going. 1 Peter chapter 4, the very next chapter, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Again, he is preparing these first century Christians for incredible opposition. There are going to be battles in life. You are going to face enemies of the cross of Christ. So be ready. Arm yourselves. Well, what are they supposed to arm themselves with? Well, in marriage, what do we typically arm ourselves with? (laughs) Whatever we have. Whatever we have that can do some damage. Sometimes it's passive aggressiveness, right? Sometimes it's criticism. Sometimes it's bringing up past mistakes. Do you remember when you did this? I do. (laughs) Do you remember when you said this? I do. And now I'm connecting it to this, and I'm making a case that says you are terrible. We use that, don't we? We use that in our relationships. We use whatever we can to get the upper hand, to win the argument, to show that we are right, to get our way. Sometimes we shut down. We withdraw. Sometimes that's our weapon of choice. Just extract ourselves. If I don't have to deal with it, then it won't be worse than it is. Somehow we tell ourselves that lie. And so we withdraw. We, we, we shut down. Or sometimes it's exploding in anger or crying. We have all kinds of things that we use. All kinds of weapons, if you will. I saw a crazy story that came out of Pensacola, Florida, which is not surprising. <laughs> About three years ago. There was, in this house, there, were, there was yelling, there was loud noise, and so the neighbor comes out and confronts uh, the, the people, and this guy comes out of this house wielding a machete. By that time, another, another neighbor comes over, and they're sort of like trying to talk this guy down, but he's like, you know, swinging the machete. One of the neighbors tries to grab him, and about that time, as he swings it, he cuts the hand of the other neighbor. It's just crazy. By that time, someone has called the police, and they show up, and they end up arresting this guy and taking care of it. But here's the crazy part of the story, in case that's not crazy enough. Here's the crazy part. On this guy's machete, he had scribbled and scraped a word. Guess what it said? Kindness. (laughs) Kindness gives the uh, phrase, killing you with kindness, new meaning, doesn't it? (laughs) I think sometimes that's what we do. We try to disguise our aggressive behavior or passive-aggressive behavior as something that might be godly, as, as kindness. 
as doing things that will be looked upon not unfavorably, but we know we're trying to hurt someone. If kindness is a weapon, I don't think that's how it's supposed to be used. And so he says, arm yourselves with the mind of Christ. That is a military term, arm yourself. He is preparing them for battle. And again, our mindset would be, okay, if I'm being prepared for battle, I need some training, I need some good weapons, I need a strategy, I need to know exactly how to get the upper hand, how to win this battle. And yet what he says is, your weapon of choice is the mind and the heart of Christ. Oh, come on, God. That's like going into a battle with a water balloon launcher. We're going to get destroyed. That's not going to work. Arm yourselves with the mind of Christ. You see, our world says you bring the full force of whatever you have. If you have power, then use it. If you're in a place of privilege or influence, then leverage it. You bring the heat. Do whatever you have to do to win at all costs. But God suggests a different battle plan, doesn't he? He says, arm yourselves with the attitude of Jesus Christ. Go into conflict with the mindset and the heart of Jesus. When you want to go with, with guns ablazing, he says, you make sure you have the mind of Christ and the heart of Christ. Now, you talk about an out-of-this-world relationship, an out-of-this-world marriage. Again, the world says you fight for what's yours. You deserve it. You're entitled to it. You do whatever you have to do. Use whatever you have to do to win. You'll stand out from the world. And in doing so, you will draw not only those in your home and in your family and in your sphere of influence closer to the image of Jesus, you will be a witness to a world that desperately needs to see Jesus. And they can see Jesus in our marriages, in our relationships, having the mind of Christ. I'm reminded of Philippians chapter 2. I don't think I have it on the screen, but if you have your Bible, you might look at it. This beautiful Christ hymn, this, this song, really, that Paul uses as a song of praise and worship to Jesus, he sets it in the context of this is who we should be. This Jesus we sing about, this is who we should be. So he says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. So he says, first of all, you need to think like each other. Okay, well, that's kind of dangerous because who gets to decide how we think? He keeps going. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And then he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mind or the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus. And then he talks about how Jesus emptied himself and became nothing, being obedient to death, even death to the cross. He says that's the picture, that's the mind of Christ that we are to have. The mind that says, I will lower myself, I will empty myself. I am entitled to this, but I will park that on the side because there's something more important here, and that is loving and blessing others. That's the mind of Christ. Jesus gave up what he was entitled to, the divine glory of heaven. And he leveraged his rights and submitted his will. He entered our world and he met people where they were. 
When Lazarus died, what did Jesus do? The shortest verse in the Bible. What is it? John, no? Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He met people where they were. He showed empathy. He felt for people and with people. That is the mind and the heart of Christ. In your marriage, in your relationships, in your family, develop empathy. Empathy is so important. It's one of the variables I studied in graduate school. And what I found is empathy, in fact, does mitigate aggressive behavior, but you can't just activate empathy in people. I can't just tell you, be more empathetic, show more empathy. You see, until your eyes truly see someone and your heart truly feels for someone and your ears truly listen to someone, you won't show empathy. You will only see what you want to see. You will only hear your voice in your head and you only see your needs and your desires. Jesus met people where they were. He heard them. He saw them. He validated them. We are to have the mind, the heart of Christ. So if you're in conflict with your spouse, arm yourself, not with all those things we talked about, arm yourself with the mind of Christ. Walk with them. Listen to them. Say things like, that must have been difficult. Tell me more about it. How did you handle it? That must have been tough. Say things like, I bet that was painful when your mother passed away or when your boss said that. Tell me about that. There's something called wowing versus howing. What it means is so often we how people. Someone comes with a great idea or they say something. And what's our first reaction? We can't do that. How are you going to do that? That's impossible. It can't be done. We do that in church a lot, by the way. Someone has an idea. That'll never work. Next. <laughs> Rather than howing, how can that be done? There's no way that can be done. What if we took a moment just to wow, just to say, you know what, that's an interesting idea. I want to hear more about that. Or empower them to see if they can make it happen. See, there's a big difference there. The mind of Christ, the heart of Christ, meets people where they are. It doesn't say you shouldn't be there, and let me tell you all the reasons why. It doesn't do that in life, and it doesn't do that in marriage. Let's keep moving back in our text. 1 Peter chapter 4 Verse 8, above all, and by the way, you could substitute the pronouns here. You might substitute if you're married, your spouse's name, or you could do your child's name, or your parent's name, or a friend's name, because it applies. So above all, love each other, or love him, love her, deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. What does he say there? Back in verse 8, love each other deeply. Focus on that word deeply for a moment. What does that mean? Love each other deeply. Loving deeply means loving unconditionally. I love you. I choose to love you despite and then fill in the blank. And we could all fill in different blanks. 
I choose to love you despite fill in the blank. He says love covers a multitude of sins. What he says there is not that love becomes a cover-up for wrongdoing. That's not what he's saying. I think the essence of what he's saying, and I could be wrong, but I think what he's saying is that love diffuses evil. Love diffuses evil. And then he goes on to say, when you speak, when you speak, when words come out of your mouth, make sure they are words that reflect God and his will. Make sure that when you speak, they are God-honoring, life-giving words. So let me ask you a question. What if the only words that came out of your mouth were God-honoring, life-giving words of God? That would change some things, wouldn't it? That would change how you interacted with certain people, with most people. That would probably change the outcome of those interactions. If you truly spoke the words of God. It's been estimated that the average person speaks about 16,000 words a day. And I know we joke that guys have much, much less, right? Much less words to speak than, than women, but the truth is, research says it's pretty, pretty close. I know on Sundays I speak a lot, of more, a lot more words than I do every other day of the week, so maybe it averages out. So, if you speak an average of 16,000 words a day over an average lifetime, that is something like 450 million words. Can you imagine? 450 million words. That's a lot of words. Let me ask you, where do they come from? How are they formed? What is their purpose? And more than that, what is their impact? That's a lot of words. 450 words. Are they the words of God? One author and, and lecturer, he goes around and he talks to people about how they use their words. And one of the things he says is, how many of you could go 24 hours without saying an unkind thing to someone or about someone? How many of you could go 24 hours? And there's sort of this laughter in the audience every time he poses that question. And a few people raise their hand. They think, oh, I could probably do that. And then a lot of people don't raise their hand because they know they probably can't if they're being truly honest with themselves. And then he goes on to say, think about that. If you can't go 24 hours without saying an unkind word to someone or about someone, there's an issue. If you can't go 24 hours without a drink, you may be an alcoholic. If you can't go 24 hours without a smoke, you may be addicted to nicotine. So if you can't go 24 hours without saying an unkind word to someone or about someone, there may be a problem. And I think he's right. You see, when our buttons are pushed, when we feel like we're cornered or we're trapped, our emotions are triggered, our words are sometimes the most deadly weapons we use. He says, speak the words of God. Speak the words of God. Christian writer Nancy Ortberg tells the story, and now after Jake's story, I, I even feel bad telling this story. But she tells the story about one time it was Christmas, and she needed to go to the store to get something very quickly. And you know how it is at Christmas. The stores are busy. The, you can't hardly find a parking spot. And so she goes to the store, and sure enough, there's no parking spots. But she spots an older couple walking out of the store, carrying their bags, and she thinks, I'll just wait on them. I'll just stay right here. I'll wait on them. And so they kind of walk by her, and she does the, the stalking thing in the car, you know, 
waiting for them to find their car. And they, so they find their car, and she just stops, and she waits patiently. And he goes around, and he opens the door for his wife, and she's thinking, okay, do we really have to be that much of a gentleman? Just get in the car. Puts the gifts in the car, gets all in, starts the car. You know, it's been several minutes at this point. Slowly pulls out. And as the car pulls out, before she can pull in, this old white van just rips right into the parking spot. She is irate. So the old couple leaves. She pulls up right behind the van. She gets out of her car, and she goes up to the van, and she just gives him an earful. She later said, if my mother would have heard me, she would have washed my mouth out with soap. <laughs> she said, I just gave him everything. That was my spot. I'd been waiting for that spot. I, you know, I'm entitled to that spot. All those things that some of us might say, unfortunately, and even some things that we should not say, uh, ways we shouldn't say them. It was so bad that he actually pulled out of the spot and went on <laughs> and gave her the spot. When she pulled the car into that spot after he left, she said, I felt justified, I felt vindicated, I felt like, yeah, I got what I deserved. And then she said, suddenly, the Spirit of God started putting scriptures on her heart. Like Matthew 15, verse 18. For out of the heart, our words are formed. What we speak comes from our heart. And she wondered about the condition of her heart. If the heart produces the words we speak, then what is the condition of our heart? Peter says, speak the very words of God. Imagine if you did that. Imagine the transformation that would bring in your life, that would bring in your relationships. How is that possible, though? How is it possible to speak the words of God? We aren't God. We are human. We are very imperfect. We are unholy. We don't always say things we should say, and sometimes we say things we shouldn't say. So how is that even possible? Do you remember what he said that we talked about earlier in verse 1? Arm yourselves with the mind of Christ. Because our thought is, I would have to be inside God's mind to speak his words, or he would have to be in mine. And Peter says, you're exactly right. You need to have the mind of Christ. You need to speak the words of God. And when we do that, when, we, when you think with the mind of Christ, you will speak with the words of Christ. When you think with the mind of Christ, you will speak with the words of Christ. And what happens then? What happens, as he says in verse 11, is that God is praised. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. You see, when you choose to live as an exile, an alien in this world, and you choose to do life that way, and you choose to do marriage that way, God is honored and glorified. Your marriage becomes a means of worship. Your life becomes an altar on which sacrifices of praise are made to God. I know that sort of foreign thinking, we don't think about our marriages that way, we don't think about our homes and our families that way, we don't think about our lives that way, but that's the truth. Our lives, our homes, our families, our marriages can become a means of worship to praise God. And when the world hears that, it will sound like a foreign language. When they hear the words of God, it will sound like a foreign language. Because, let's be honest, we don't hear love spoken very often these days. Where do you find the words of God except for the word of God? 
Where do you see in social media, in conversations, where do you hear the words of God? It will sound like a foreign language. It will sound like it's out of this world. And yet when we hear it, it's such a breath of fresh air. It's so refreshing. It's so encouraging. And you can be the source of that encouragement to other people and the source of worship and praise to God. I have a friend who's in Edmond. Some of you may actually know him. He, he grew up and he lived for a long time uh, in the Oklahoma panhandle in Beaver. His name is Dean. He's in his mid-90s now. His wife died a few years ago. But they had been married for 72 years. 72 years. Can you imagine? And they were the sweetest, kindest couple. Uh, mentors for so many people. They were involved at Oklahoma Christian as the parents or sponsors for one of the girls' clubs, social service clubs. And so they had people in their home all the time. Just a wonderful couple. Well, a few years ago, several years ago, she was really dealing with dementia and Alzheimer's. And so she was living in a memory care place, really close to our church building. And then after several years, her health really dropped off. And, and so they moved her into an assisted living facility. And one day I, I got a call that, that she was, that it was close to the end. And so I went to, to see Virginia. And I went in that room, I'll never forget, I went in that room, it was a tiny little room. Her family, her wonderful family was just gathered around. Dean was sitting in a chair right next to her. She was laying on her side on the bed. And I just kind of crouched down, squatted down next to the bed, and I said a few things to Virginia, and I, I didn't know if she could hear me, but I hoped that she could at least feel my presence and my love and support for her. Just said a, a, you know, a few words to her, and as I was standing up, I looked, and there at the foot of her bed on the wall was this crooked five-by-seven framed photo. It's the photo on the left. And there was nothing else on the walls. You know, she wasn't there for, she was only there for a few days. And I thought, if there's only one thing on your walls, it's got to be something important. It's got to be the love of your life. And surely it was. Her family wanted her to see that image. They wanted her to remember that she was loved dearly and that she loved him dearly. That was a picture on their wedding day in 1946. There's more to that story, though. When she was in memory care, and this was probably 10 or 12 years she was in memory care. Her husband, Dean, would go visit her every day. Every day. Every single day. And he had a routine he would do. He would, of course, sit and talk with her. He would do all the things that, you know, you would do there and they would visit. But right when he got there or before he left, he would lean down and they had this routine. He would put his head, his forehead, on her forehead. And as they were touching foreheads, he would sing, You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. You'll never know, dear, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. And he would sing that to her in his shaky voice every single day because he wanted her to know that she was his sunshine. That even when she couldn't remember him, and that day came, that she would know that she was still loved in that moment. You see, that's arming yourself with the mind of Christ. That's elevating the other person. That is speaking the words of God. And what an incredible source of praise to God 
and an incredible witness to her family and to any of us who saw them live out their lives. You see, that's how we're supposed to live. I can assure you, they would say, we didn't have the perfect marriage, and yet they chose to be lights for each other and in this world. And so I would just encourage you to make that same decision. You see, it all starts with saying, I want to recognize that I am a child of God, that this is not my home. As Peter says, you're in exile. You don't belong here. Don't get too comfortable. You're just a passing through. We have to come to terms with that identity, with that reality. Maybe you're ready to do that. You're ready to stake your claim, not on this earth, but in the kingdom of heaven. Not as a citizen of this nation, but a citizen of God's kingdom. Maybe you're ready today to confess your faith in Jesus, to put him on in baptism, to be raised to live a new life with a new purpose that honors him. I know this church family would celebrate with you today. They would help you make that happen and baptize you today. Take your confession. Maybe you need encouragement. You need support. You need prayers. Maybe it means you and your spouse having some conversations, or maybe it means you need to reach out and get an outsider to help you a little bit. Don't be too proud to do that. If you need to reach out to this church family, I know they would encourage you and lift you up in prayer. We're going to sing a song. If there's some need that you have, you can come forward and make it known. Let's stand and sing.